Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the Sydney Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm CEO and co-founder of Sydney Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management. So passionate, in fact, that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. So in today's show, I speak with Mike Adams, who is the author of Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. As founder and CEO of The Story Leader, Mike helps clients grow their revenue by systematically leveraging the most important human communication mechanism, story. Their mission is to develop a unique and compelling program for the growth of your team that connects and resonates with your staff, clients, and partners, differentiates your business to make your company the only option, closes better and more deals for your company and leaves your company with enduring value, a story library and a story leader. Mike has significant global experience in leading sales teams and this has put him into a unique position where he's qualified to talk about all things sales and leadership. He has worked for organizations such as Nokia, Siemens, Motorola and Spotless Group to name a few. Now during the course of the conversation we explore Mike's book in detail. I start off by asking Mike why did he decide to write this book? We speak about how stories can change our minds and how the mind has a natural language. We explore the simple story framework and how we can use it to build better connection. And I finish the interview by asking Mike about how we can learn from other people's stories. So keep listening and as always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Mike Adams, author of Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Mike, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, be here so that the listeners have a bit of a sense of who you are. Who is Mike Adams? Thanks, Julian, and thanks to you for having me. Who is Mike Adams? Well, uh, these days I'm a B2B consultant. I work with sales teams, generally fairly large sales teams, 10, 20 plus groups of salespeople. And my short line is I help them say the right thing. And uh, that's a little bit of a recurring issue with salespeople, and I include myself. We often say the wrong thing. Not just in the wrong thing, we often talk about our products and services too early. Um, And sometimes we say the wrong thing as in ethically the wrong thing. We might not tell the truth, and that usually doesn't hold us in good stead in the long term at all. So teaching salespeople to say the right thing is what I've been doing for four years. I had a career in big corporations before that. I actually grew up in Tasmania and got the dream job out of engineering. I did an engineering, electrical engineering degree, and um, I went and worked for a company called Schlumberger. It's an oil and gas services firm, very large firms, about a $30 billion company. And um, that involved working on oil rigs in the ocean and in the jungles of Indonesia and Malaysia and China. I worked in China when everyone was on bicycles wearing military uniforms, so that shows you how old I am, but that was the late 80s. And then I got into working in the computing centre on some new software we were developing. I was the expert on that software, and that was in London. And then my boss called me in and said, Mike, we have this great career opportunity. 
and that's corporate code for a job nobody else wants. That's what career opportunity means if you work in a big company. And that was to go to Norway, which I thought sounded pretty good, and be a salesperson. And that sounded pretty bad. I didn't want to be a salesperson at all. 1996, that was. What I said was, my wife is eight months pregnant, so I can't go. And then I went home and she said, no, I want to go to Norway. <laughs> so, uh, so we went and she gave birth in a public hospital in Norway a month after we arrived. And I was on a very early Motorola mobile phone trying to be a salesperson in the, in the delivery room. And um, I'm pretty sure I would have gone back to engineering, except I had the most fortunate experience in my rookie year as a salesperson. I closed the biggest deal in our company worldwide, a corporate deal, because I met the perfect client who just decided he wanted to buy our software for everyone. I was just really lucky. But I thought I was good, <laughs> as we do. There's a little bit of an issue with us salespeople. We think we're better than we are. And so I ended up running sales teams in Europe. I went to Russia, ran a sales team in Russia, all through Northern Europe, ran a marketing team as well. And then when it was time to come back to Australia, which was 2003, I chose to live in Melbourne, didn't have any contacts here at all, and no possibility of oil and gas work, that's really in Perth. So I had to kind of present myself as a salesperson, which I was starting to be comfortable with. And I told a very good story, I know I told a very good story, and I got a job selling telecommunications for Siemens to our biggest telecom carrier here in Australia. and. Um, and I did well at that eventually, it took me a little while, but I ended up running, I was transferred overseas again to Malaysia and I was running a team of salespeople, more than 100, all over Southeast Asia for what then became Nokia Siemens and Nokia. Came back to Australia, got a job with Spotless running their new business for mining camp and oil and gas camp facility services, big contracts, so 10 to $30 million per annum contracts. Changed industry again, two more times, three more times. And by then I'd started to figure out how to change industry. Like how do you sell when you don't really know anything? You don't know, you don't have any idea. You don't even know that you're not speaking the right language probably with your clients. What do you say? What stories do you need to be able to say? Because you might only have six to eight months to sell something, otherwise you're out. So how do you do that? And that was the formulation of my thinking for the consulting company. How do I help salespeople like the people that have worked for me in those different industries, how do I help them say the right thing? And, and storytelling is a big clue to that. Helping them find the powerful stories that every company has, practicing them a little bit so they're confident, and then delivering those stories in their conversations is, is what I do. So we're here to talk about your book, uh, Seven Stories Every Salesperson Must Tell. And for those listeners, it is a leadership podcast, so don't worry, I will be taking a leadership angle on it. Why did you decide to write a book about it? I wrote the book, so you, you have to be careful with the question, why? This is one <laughs> of the things I teach my salespeople. The fact is we don't really know why. But if we're truly honest, our whys are about our ego and our social status and things like that. You know, Writing a book is a way to increase your status, actually, as a consultant. So there's no doubt that's an angle. But truly, I was finding something that worked with the sales teams, but I was working with them at quite a deep level. And I knew that there wasn't much chance that my ideas would get distributed if I didn't put them in a book. And uh, there isn't much written about storytelling specifically for salespeople. There are, most of the books on storytelling are for change management or for leadership. And this was specifically about business development, revenue generation. How do you use stories to bring revenue into your company? 
and that's what the seven story types are about. Each of the seven stories has a specific character, a central hero. So the first three stories are about connecting. So the first job as a salesperson is to connect with a potential buyer. So how do you do that in a way that they trust you and like you and see you as an authority? And the three stories are your personal story, your key staff story, someone in your organization that your buyer must trust as well, and your company story. So the hero is yourself, that key staff person, and your company founders usually. They're the heroes of those three stories. And then you need to change people's minds. And the two stories that do that are insight stories and success stories. The hero of the insight story is your researcher, the person in your company that discovered the insight that your buyer needs to know. It might be insight about their market or their company, things that they don't appreciate that they should. You can't just tell your client they don't know something about their business. That will sound arrogant. But if you can teach them by telling them the story about how you discovered it, and that's the insight story. And then success stories, which are not case studies. That's the story of a client like the one you're talking to who succeeded with your products and services. And you need to tell the journey of how they were, how they got into the problem they got into, how they met your company as a guide, and then how you helped them avoid failure and achieve success. That's a particular journey. We call that hero's journey. Success story. And the final two stories are to help you land the deal. And I think very interesting for this podcast as well, value stories. That's the story of how your leaders or the leaders in your company behave when they're challenged, which show your future client how you'll behave when things go wrong. What kind of a company are you really when things... Because every, every client situation has ups and downs. And what are you like when things aren't going so well? That's the value story, the story of your leader that's challenged. And finally is the teaching story. And the hero is the sales manager. How do you teach your client to buy your products and services when they're in that closed door meeting and they're trying to make the decision? How do you teach them to get around the obstacles of decision making? That's the final story in the book. Mm. Yeah, so those are the seven stories with seven distinct heroes or central mm. characters in the story. Yeah. And, and when, when I was reading them, I, I do think there's a lot of application for leaders who, who are going to be able to resonate with this, but I did want to start off with a small, uh, quick episode if I can. And from the introduction, when we joined the business world, we set aside a communication method we'd learned and loved as children. This book is about reconnecting you with it. I want to awaken in you something you always knew, that telling stories is the most powerful way to connect, communicate and learn in any context. So why did we put it aside when we joined corporate? Why don't we tell stories anymore? It's a modern phenomenon that, of course, before writing, the only way we had to communicate cultural information was through stories. If you look at the Aboriginal dream times, you know, there was no written language, so stories are the only way to communicate how to live in the driest land continent on Earth and how to survive is through storytelling, the dream time stories. But then something happens in business, and I think it's as, probably only as long ago as maybe the 1950s, 1960s, where it starts to be thought that storytelling is unbusinesslike, and maybe, maybe that um, people telling stories that are not quite succinct and, and to the point, you know, so business people sort of get a little bit of impatience about stories. Uh, and I teach five aspects of a story that if you miss them, you'll 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 definitely have a chance that your story misses. Um, so yeah, it's become unbusinesslike. We think that we incorrectly think that. Just give me the facts 
and I'll figure it out. We incorrectly think that, that that's how a business meeting should be. And so we bore ourselves witless with PowerPoint presentations of facts and facts and facts without the context of the story. And that's very difficult for our brains. Our, our, our neocortex, the biggest part of our brain, three quarters of our brain, is a sequence prediction organ. It's trying to predict what happens next. And your brain was predicting I was going to say the word next. And because that's what your brain does, that's what it's doing, it's just predicting. And stories by definition are sequences. That's what a story is. A story, a story has to be a sequence of related events. Otherwise, it's not a story. It's just assertions. And because it's a sequence and because we know by cultural understanding that stories are unpredictable and surprising, we pay attention. So, and as I'm sure you're aware, attention is probably our most, our most scarce resource these days. Everyone's distracted by their phones and their things bipping. And, you know, we're, we're not really paying much attention these days, I think even compared to 10 years ago before the rise of smartphones. So probably storytelling is more important now in conversation than it ever was because it grabs attention. We want to know what's going to happen next. You know, Netflix is a multi-billion dollar organization and I think one of the reasons they're so popular is at the end of that series that you just watched it goes five four three two one to the next episode and we go oh what's yeah. gonna happen next and yeah. we stay and we, we binge watch right because we just want to know what's gonna happen next and that's what stories do they they keep that suspense yeah. and they've even Netflix has even worked out how to capture you beyond that because then it comes up with your recommended suggestions correct what, like what do you like and you like mm. this next one so they've really nailed that storytelling yeah. aspect and businesses should learn from that because mm. most businesses in their marketing communications in their presentations and in their conversations they sound exactly like their competitors they make the same claims they they say you know we're the number one at this we're this and that and it sounds fake and it sounds like all your competitors so i think for your listeners it would be interesting to talk about the company story because that is something that everyone who meets a client should be able to tell but most staff in most companies can't tell their company story mm. and so maybe i'll give you a little example of yeah, the company go, story. Go for it. so the first time i really took notice of how powerful stories are was when i was working in russia I moved to Moscow with my family, my boys, three boys, they were probably four, five and six at that time, quite young. And we moved to Moscow. My territory was all of the former Soviet Union and we were selling software and I had a sales team, I was running a sales team there. And I had heard a little bit of the history of Schlumberger, my company in Russia, because it's a fairly famous story in our company. Um, Schlumberger started in the late 1920s, two French brothers, Marcel and Conrad, invented a technique by lowering a, an electrode in an oil well and measuring the, the potential, the voltage potential between the electrode and the surface and then moving it up through the well. They realized that they could measure the resistivity of the rock. And the resistivity of the rock is not the rock, it's the fluid in the rock. And oil has a high resistivity and water has a low resistivity. So they invented a technique that told you exactly where the oil was, which is that's the sort of invention you need to make a $30 billion business. And one of the world's most profitable companies have never ever made a loss in, since 1929, right? Just made a fortune, that company. And so they, had, they invented this thing, but, but as is often the case with a new invention, this is the entrepreneur's problem, no one believed it or wanted to 
trial even the technique, except in the former Soviet Union, the Russians got it. And they that's where it started first. So Schlumberger actually had its first success in the Soviet Union in the early 1930s. And then they got nationalized by Stalin. Actually, it was pretty brutal. There was a purge and, and their guys were executed and, and had all of their equipment stolen and kicked out of, out of Russia, out of the Soviet Union. But fortunately, by then, they'd started to do business in Texas, in the US, and so the company did grow and did become a, a massive company. But in the late, more like mid-1990s, they had to make a decision, do we go back into Russia? Because now Russia's opening up as a, a capitalist economy. And they, the strategy guys took a business case to the CEO and they said, um, how much money are you willing to risk going back into Russia? And he said, 200 million, like with, without a, a second's hesitation, I'll risk 200 million. And so they decided to, to essentially sponsor and, and, and help two of the newly, newly privatized Russian oil companies. They put in technical experts and financial experts and economists, and they doubled the production of those two companies in 18 months in the 1990s. So the Russian oil industry was going terminally down and these two companies went up. And uh, today, like the business for Schlumberger in Russia is multi-billion dollar business. And they own many Russian oil companies, Russian service companies now as well. So I told that story and I started hearing some of my other clients telling me the story back. That's when you know your story does work, when you hear other people tell you the story and you go, ooh, okay. Yeah. That story's doing the rounds, right? Now, if you think about what's in that story, you know, I told it a little bit longer probably than I would tell it in a client meeting, but in a couple of minutes, you've explained how your company exists, what its history was, a fairly dark history, and you know, like surviving some failures, but also what your company will do for your client. They're gonna make you rich, right? And without you having to say that, without you having to say you're the number one and you're all over the world and you've been around since the 1920s, you just, you just tell the story and all that information just comes along for the ride and it's listened to and it's accepted and you made your point. Mm. And they remember it and not only that, they go and tell someone else. Mm. So it's doing work for you. The last part of a company story should be your strategy story as well. Where is your company going? Where are you going? And if your staff can tell that story, it's very compelling. Now, notice that Michelinbridge is a very big company, and maybe some of your listeners work for very large organizations. But I told the story of Michelinbridge in Russia, which was my territory. So you can adapt your company story to your product area or to your territory, you know, or your particular situation, or even your client situation, and just tell that story. Start it with the history of your company, and then just go off into the history in in this area and it'll be very compelling it'll be interesting in um chapter one you, you talk about this idea that stories can change our minds yes so for the listeners who are prominently all in a leadership position how can they use stories to change people's minds that the that biggest part of your brain the neocortex is what it does is it it looks for sequences in the environment patterns and if they repeat it memorizes them so that it knows what's going to happen next, right? So, and that happens at a, at a very, very low level. If there's a tap dripping, your brain will have noticed it's dripping. And then if it suddenly stops, you'll notice it stopped, even though you'd forgotten that it was going, right? So it's doing that all the time at a low level. And then, so what's happening is that it's a neural network. We have artificial intelligence neural networks. So it is a neural network, your, your cortex. 
and it's rewiring itself to predict the pattern, what's going to happen next. And once it's happily done that, that's remembered. It knows that pattern. You've probably had the experience of driving home and wondering how you got there. You drove, you drove home on automatic pilot, right? Well, that's your neocortex. It's just predicted correctly everything. But if there was a, someone ran across a green light in front of you or something, you know, or, uh, you know, something unexpected happened, you would be instantly attentive, right? You would yeah. notice, right? So the stories rewire your client's mind by giving them a sequence to learn from and an experience to learn from. So what actually happens when you tell a good story is your listener inhabits the character of the story and they feel what you feel with their own internal body sense. That's one of our eight senses, our internal body sense. And they imagine what you would have seen and they imagine what you would have heard and they're trying to predict what's going to happen next. So you're literally changing their brain. You're giving them an experience that rewires their brain. If you tell a success story of how another client succeeded with your product, it's not much different to test driving your products. They will experience it through the story and you'll change their mind in that process. Mm. So that, that it's a skill, I think, that all leaders should be really starting to look at because business is changing so fast that being able to influence and change people's minds is a very powerful skill to have. It is. And my view, uh, Julian, is that the best leaders and very often the founders of companies are all storytellers, often unconsciously competent. Sometimes they sometimes they overdo it. But overdoing storytelling is better than not telling stories. So usually when I go in and work for a corporation, I usually find at least one storyteller. And all these stories come out. And then the problem the organization has is it can't grow until those stories are, are captured in a fairly tight form and the other people, the other people in a sales team, for example, hear the stories and know how to tell them themselves. So that the typical frustration for an entrepreneur is they can sell, they can do it, but they their staff can't and they don't know why. And it's it's terribly frustrating, but they don't realize that they're telling all these stories. And it's easy for them because of things that happen to them. It's more difficult for someone else to learn how to tell your story when they weren't the character in that story. But that's what we teach. And that's a, that's a tremendous point of understanding for an entrepreneur is I've got to get those stories out into the salespeople. I've got to give them a chance to practice the story so that they're comfortable. Because it's a little bit like picking up the phone for a salesperson. That's a little bit of a fearful exercise. And telling a story the first time, like consciously, purposely telling a story in a business meeting, is also a little bit confronting. You know, will, will they listen? You know, what will be the response? What will happen? Yeah. But in that first chapter, I, I also talk about one of the other really important reasons for telling stories. And it's not just to get an idea across and to change your client's mind. It is to get them to share their story back. Because that's what happens in the barbecue and in the pub, in our social context. You tell a story and the other person tells their story and we start exchanging stories. And that's really important for business development because firstly, that initial exchange where maybe I tell my personal story like I did, you know, going to Norway and why I do what I do. If I say, well, Julian, enough about me. Why do you, why do you run a podcast and train people on leadership? No doubt your listeners have heard your story, but when I haven't, so we would then exchange stories and you would feel more connected to me 
because you've told me your story, right? Mm. If you hadn't, I'm still a stranger. And I say that, you know, the path to not being strangers is really starting with sharing personal stories, which is the hook. That's, I'm using the fishing metaphor mm. in the book. So that now we're kind of hooked as friends, but still I need to change your mind because you're happily running your business in the direction you're pretty confident you know what you're doing. Yeah. Why should I, the salesperson, change you from doing that? I need to persuade you that there's a better course of action. So now I need to tell the insight story or the success story. I'll tell a success story example in a minute. But again, I'm using that story to get your story. So if I tell you a story about one of my clients that succeeded, and I will tell one in a second, and then I could say, and if that client is like you, then I could say, well, how's things around here? And you will probably tell me a story back. And that's much more memorable for me. I'll understand your situation much better if you tell me a story about how things are happening in your company then if you tell me some facts about you, I won't remember those. So we, we, in sales, we call that the discovery. You know, we're trying to discover, is there a fit? Is there a fit for what I do that would really help you? One thing is to tell my story, but the other is to hear back your situation. And that's an, again, that's a story exchange. So the real skill is in learning how to exchange stories. I'll give you a success story example. So most companies think, when they think success story, they think case study. And the case study format is, is problematic. The typical marketing case study, the thing that gets put up on company websites, has three parts. And it says, here's my client in this shitty situation. Here's the mess they created for themselves. Usually that's where it starts. Yeah. Here's us riding in on our white horse, fixing it. And here's how great things are now. And the subtext is, aren't we wonderful? The vendor. Yeah, aren't we, the vendor, <laughs> wonderful? Well, there's a little bit of a problem for your future client in those three parts. Is that they can't really recognize themselves in that because you've made your company the hero of that story and you've left the client out, the, succeed, the client that succeeded. So we actually need six parts. I've, I can't get it less than six to get it in. So I'll give you a quick example and then I'll take you through the parts. One of my first clients was a financial services company, self a company that was built by two brothers and they were focusing on providing financial planning and financial advice for high net worth high net worth individuals so people that had made 10 30 40 million dollars had complicated personal and business finances and they built they decided to build some specialized software to manage the affairs of these people because of that complication and they spent quite a bit of time and a lot of money developing the software. And the COO, which was the guy I was working with, we'll call him Jeff because to keep it confidential, he was in charge of the software development and his brother was the CEO and he was kind of the sales guy. But Jeff was the software guy and he, when he got it ready, his brother said, well, you have to sell that thing because he hadn't really quite bought into the idea of the software. And Jeff was an appalling salesperson and uh, I, I was connected with him via my business partner and she said, look, you know, he wants to know how to sell this software. I don't think he has a chance. And I put him through a, a little evaluation that we do for salespeople, a little conversation skills test. And he tested the worst of several hundred people we put through this test. And I said to him, look, hire a salesperson. That'll be your best bet here. And his answer was, well, I'll do that, but I'm determined to know how to do it myself first. Maybe I'm not natural at this, but I want to learn how to do it. 
So I said, well, it's going to take you six months and we need to do, I'll go with you on some client conversations. We'll debrief them. I'll explain. His big issue was firstly how to connect because his first ask with it, so he'd find people easily that, he, that would be good clients. But his first ask for them was, I need to see all of your personal and business finances so I can tell you how to save money. And that's <laughs> not an easy sell, right? Yeah, this is, no. We call this quite a tricky sell. So, so it wasn't easy. But anyway, we developed a program. I, I, I changed his approach completely. And after about six months, he was really starting to get clients. And then we started using testimonials from those clients. And it was really building. And then he had a disaster. And he fell out with his brother. Uh, to, and I'm talking like Cain and Abel kind of falling out with brother. It didn't, didn't, didn't lead to someone dying, but they, it did almost go to court. And they split, and Jeff took the whole business, so he's now the CEO, but he's in control, and he knows how to sell, and it's going absolutely fine. He's in charge of his destiny. So, so that's a success story, mm. and it has six parts. So I started with Jeff and what he was doing before he met me, and then how he got himself into a problem. And then how he met me as a guide, our company as a guide. And then the plan that I gave him and the ways to avoid failure. And then he had a near failure with his falling out with his brother. And then final success. So those are the six parts of the narrative. And you make your successful client the hero of the story, the center of the story. Your role as the vendor is as the guide. You're just the guide. You're not the hero. Mm. And it's it's a story then, you know, if, if I tell that story to a professional services company, maybe a financial services, they can identify with that client and they go, okay, I, I also need to help, help with selling. And mm. Yeah, so how's things with you? How's selling going with you? And then they'll tell me how things are going and their struggles. Yeah, we have exactly that problem. Mm. And, you know, so you need to pick your, your appropriate story. So if you've had successes, then work on developing a success story, not a case study. Mm. Timely advice, because we've got our new website coming in uh, a couple of months. So, so you're thinking all the case studies. Yeah, thinking, I'm now thinking success stories. Good, good. Yeah, well, it's easy to, um, to, to take your case study and put it into the six part. You know, you've got a good success, so you've, you've got the groundwork. Usually mm. what you're missing is the context of the client situation before you are called in. So you need to go and ring them up because they're a successful client, so they'll take mm. your call. And then ask them some questions like, what were your concerns before you hired us? What did you think could go wrong? And what did we do to help you with that? And just get that avoiding failure part. So get the early context and the avoiding failure part. And very often you can put into those stories the common objections because the objections are, if you think about it, they're potential failures. And it's not going to work because of this and this. So then we help them avoid it failing like that. Mm. And then you've essentially answered the objection already in the, in the story. Mm. You, you talk about this idea of the mind's natural language, yep. which uh, fascinates me because I'm always interested in the way some people remember like facts, some people remember music, some people remember places, some people remember stories. There's all these different ways people remember. So for, for leaders that want to get people to... Uh, retain whatever it is they want them to retain. How should they go about it? Yeah, as far as that that part of the brain that I've been talking about today, the sort of three quarters, the neocortex, the wrinkly part on the outside, as far as it's concerned, it doesn't care about the difference between sound and vision and internal feelings. It just processes the sequences. So a song 
is a type of story and a painting is a type of visual story and an anecdote is a type of story. All it is is a sequence that I'm having trouble predicting that I'm going to learn from. And when you turn, you might have noticed like if you turn your radio on in your car and you turn it to your favourite radio station and you know that song, your brain is probably predicting the next note of the song after like three beats. It'll probably not take you more than three yeah. beats to know that song because you've memorised that song. You know the sequence. So whenever you have a story that's interesting and surprising, people will remember that story long after they've forgotten everything about your presentation and your, the features and benefits of your services. But they'll remember that story just like you remember that song because the sequence, the pattern has now become interesting to you and memorable because of that unpredictability. It's the surprise. So when you hear a new song for the first time, there will be melodies and patterns within that song that will remind you of other songs. Otherwise, it'll just be noise. And then you'll say, oh, yeah, I like that little variation. I like the way this song goes or I like the story of that song. And you'll pretty quickly repeat it to yourself in your mind and that's how you remember it, through repetition. And then you'll know that song. The next time that song comes on the radio, halfway through, you'll be happily predicting it. So it's the same with stories. If, if, if leaders can realise that there are a few highly memorable stories about their company, just like memorable songs, that they can capture, enhance them so that you're just getting the real true points of the story, and then put them on a story in a story library, video them, video is the best format, just video, say the CEO telling the story or, or one of your clients telling the story so that all of your team can just listen to that two, three minute story. It's, that's the equivalent of getting them to remember the song. Mm. One of the things I, I liked about the book was that you provide quite a lot of frameworks. Yeah, that's the engineers. Yeah. Engineers create frameworks. Yeah. <laughs> and, practical. And, and, I, and I think that that's... that's really useful because I'm actually yet to meet anyone that fully reads an entire business book. Most no. people tend to find a really bit that resonates and then run off and implement it and then maybe just put the book on the shelf. So I really like it that it's got a... It's, it's still a reference. So yeah. you know that there's a framework. So if you if you can remember like, okay, there's a thing called a value story and it's in that book, you can go back to it. And exactly. Get the framework, yeah. And, and you provide a, a four-step simple story framework. Yes, that's the simplest structure. Yeah. And Let me so start the, there. And yeah, the simplest structure, which is all, all six of the seven stories have this simple structure. The, the one I gave you, the example, which was six steps, is two extra steps because there's two characters. There's your successful client, and then you have to introduce your company as the guide coming in. So that takes the extra two steps. But if you want to just tell the story of yourself, your personal story, or someone else in your company, or your researcher, or your leader, there's just one hero. It's just them. And the simplest structure is the setting. And it's really important that you, that you use a time marker and a place marker. If I say, once upon a time, you know that a fairy tale, fairy tale is starting, right? If I say in 1996 when I transferred to Norway, that's the signal. There's a, there's a story starting. It's a true story. So a true story is starting. If you miss that step, people may not be paying attention. They, they may miss the start of your story, so they're, they're confused, right? So that is really important. That's one of, the, one of the five ways that stories fail. And then you move into, from the setting, a complication. 
something's going wrong, some, something surprising is happening. Otherwise, it's a boring story. If, if there's nothing going wrong, it's, it's not very interesting. And then you resolve that. Then there's a resolution event. You, you fix that problem or you, you come up with a solution and then finally you make a point. You make your business point. You, you resolve it to make a point. It's only a story, it's, you know, we have lots of funny stories and interesting stories that we would tell socially, but if it doesn't make a business point, then you're wasting people's time. And you can't do that if you're talking to a CEO, CFO, you have to make a relevant point. Now, we don't use the word story, so I would say, well, that reminds me of when I was working in Siemens, and I would just say what happened. Some strange, unpredictable thing happened, and then boom, and it's relevant. It makes the point to what we were just talking about. And that's the structure, a setting, time and a place, the character is yourself or someone you knew or someone you heard of in an unpredictable, surprising situation and then, oh, we resolved it, we make, a, we make a point. We have a strong preference for stories that have a happy ending, have a, have a, uh, a positive message and even real disasters can be made that way. You know, even if you have a total catastrophe and you lost your business, you can still go, well, I'm never going to do that again, right? I've learnt from that, you know, and that's why I don't do things that way anymore. You can still make a, a resolution point out of a, a failure story, if you like. Okay. We spoke earlier about this idea of connection. Yeah. And that stories are a great way to connect. So I'm envisaging some of our listeners have teams that are reporting to them, could be multiple sizes, there's obviously going to be people that they connect more strongly with than others. So how do they use stories to sort of connect more universally with the team? Yes. So all organisations, all the staff in all organisations are close observers of the leaders. They watch what leaders do. Listen carefully to what they say. And they also listen carefully for dissonance things where the leader does one thing and says the other thing and they'll believe what you do not what they not what you say so so you can you can connect with your clients in a couple of really important ways one is by telling anecdotes about things that happen to you and be prepared to be vulnerable no one is that attracted to or wants to follow someone that isn't that, that doesn't have any humanity that we all know that things go wrong all of us have problems in our personal life and, and and if you like to pretend that that's not you you're the heroic leader and nothing goes wrong you're not going to connect very well in a personal story personal stories should have vulnerability and they should be personal in some way now i said my wife was eight months pregnant when i transferred to Norway. that that's personal if i put that in my personal story in a small business meeting, it's likely I'll get something personal back from the other side. If I'm addressing a staff meeting and I talk about something that went wrong and that was embarrassing, and but I put it out there anyway and I'm, I'm vulnerable like that, it connects far more than follow me, I'm the great leader who knows what he's doing and you know, mm. because that's not really that believable. So that's the first way. Vulnerability is, is an important concept with a personal story. And the second thing is the value story, which is story number six. And that is demonstrating the kinds of behaviours that you would like your staff to follow and pick up on. And if you do that in a kind of public way, you will trigger a story. 
and I'll give you an example from my experience was when I was working with um, Siemens, massive German multinational company, conglomerate. And I happened to be with our CEO, Albert, country CEO, Australian CEO. Albert, he'd just taken a phone call. I could tell it was a serious phone call. And he confided that um, Siemens was delivering some of the major components for a big electrical engineering project. It was the Basslink, the, the cable that connects Tasmania, where I grew up, to Victoria. And they were providing the inverter transformers that go at each end, massive pieces of equipment. And the ship that was, the ship that was bringing the um, transformers from Germany to Australia hit a storm in the Southern Ocean, broke its rudder, and smashed all six transformers on the way to, to Melbourne. And so Albert was fielding all these calls from a very distressed and um, un unhappy Victorian state government and Tasmanian government and all of the other project stakeholders of this you know, really large project. And he told me that these, the Siemens board met, emergency meeting, no discussion about you know, who are we litigating and where do we recover our money. It was how do we, how do we build six transformers in record time. And, and they actually hit the, the project delivery time. They, they built them again in way under the previous build time. Wow. Yeah. So that's a value story. That is, you know, how does your company behave and how do you lead that kind of behavior? Well, the Siemens board led that behavior. We care about the outcome of our client. And, and those kinds of stories are incredibly persuasive, not just to your staff, but to your future clients as well. That is a, that's why it's the sixth sales story, because if you've worked with a couple of people on a big deal, going up to the decision phase, you know, what happens in the decision phase for a deal that size is that the vendors are locked out completely of the discussion. There'll be a stakeholder group of five, six, 10, 12, depending on how big the deal is, people and a lot of the people that have come into that final decision meeting haven't followed the deal all the way through but they've got risk concerns there'll be safety people commercial people various compliance legal people involved in that and they're mainly concerned about risk what will go wrong and if you've told a value story like the one i just told and then the question comes up you know will these guys deliver well you're the guy in your, in your client organisation that's heard that story, they don't have to deliver the story. Their tone of voice will convey their conviction. Listen, guys, it's, it's Siemens, of course, they're going to deliver. Yeah. And, and that's unbelievably persuasive. That's worth a lot of points of margin, in fact. Mm. Clients will pay more for the certainty that something is going to be delivered, that they will get their outcome, they won't lose their job. And so, yeah, and, and many companies have these stories, you know, the hospitality industry have, you know, the lost passport on the desk and the bellboy went out to the airport and didn't want a reward and gave it to the, to the guest. And, you know, these kind of stories, you know, how do you behave really when you're operating day to day? They motivate and they lead your staff, they teach your staff what to follow in terms of behavior and they teach your clients what you're going to be like to deal with after they've signed the deal. They're very persuasive. Mm. I'm fascinated with this idea of rapport. Yes. Yeah, uh, from a number of different angles. I think that obviously in any sort of sales relationship, it's crucial, but I also like to explore from people how they build rapport with the people that report to them and also importantly, their peers. So have you got any tips you can give them on how they can build rapport? <clears throat> yeah, if you, if you look at the... Um, 
it's probably hundreds of thousands of books that have been written on sales. You know, the first sentence in my book is the world is not waiting for another sales book. And it's really true. You know, there's no shortage of literature. But the, the area of rapport is almost not written about. We just kind of know that some people seem to have it and others don't. You know, some people seem to be likable and others don't. You know, we can't all be Irish, right? <laughs> so how, how, do, how, does, how does this get built? And uh, so it's been really missing from the literature. And, and I think that storytelling is an interesting clue to that. And I believe that rapport starts with the story exchange. So people will start to like you when they hear their story, but you won't be connected with them in a two-way exchange until you've heard their personal story. And leaders should take the effort to learn the backstory of their staff. How did they get to be where they are and why do they do what they do really? Because although we have, we all have deep-seated, somewhat animal motivations, our intrinsic motivations to be competent and to relate to the rest of the staff, to have proper staff relationships and to, um, to have autonomy in our work. So autonomy, competence and interrelationships with staff. These are pretty fundamental and, and the world of positive psychology is starting to really handle. There are papers written on this finally in the last few years, very recent. What these papers tell us is that you should not assume what the motivation is of your staff members. Don't assume that they're motivated by money. They probably aren't. Mm. Don't assume that they're motivated by the carrots of whatever status or the company car park or whatever. And you won't find those things out unless you one-on-one -on -one exchange stories. So, and the way to do it is to be vulnerable first. Tell your story and be open about your own fears of your job and your leadership position and then ask them, well, what about you? How did you get into this? Well, how did you come to us? And, and just learn a bit more about your staff and it will totally change the relationship you have with the people that work with you. And if you only do that with your direct reports, but teach them, teach them by, by being private about that and, and, and keeping their confidences, then they can go out and do the same thing with their staff and you can start to create this kind of much better rapport and connectedness with your own staff and of course with your clients mm. yeah. and your partners you remind me of a mistake i made when i was uh leading a sales team in the assumption they're all after a bigger commission and i had a very a very good uh commission structure in place and one person in particular just didn't buy into it and i had to do that have the one-on-one -on -one and realize that it wasn't about that for him it was about just you know the respect and the and the recognition for the work that he was doing so and as soon as i took that approach wow what a difference yeah i mean some people think that there's only like hunters and and farmer kind of sales people yeah. but there's i think there are three really important categories of salespeople. i call them magicians marines and medics the magicians are the true bd people that will open up a new market and find a way to sell something brand new they are typically motivated by the challenge not by the reward. You'll have to pay them a lot because they're very rare. It doesn't mean you can't avoid paying them well. But they're not month in, month out, commission focused. They're trying to solve a problem. And they're a different personality from the very well organized, persevering Marine that probably is a bit more motivated by the money and the transaction of getting it done, get it done, repeat, rinse, repeat. But they're following a process. 
And then the medic is the account manager that's much more motivated by the ongoing relationship they have and friendship they have with their existing account that they're trying to upsell. And they're motivated by expanding the relationship and by the friendship that they get within the company. And that's three different characters completely. So mm. you, you must know that that's three different motivations. Mm. And if you put the wrong character in the wrong job, it's probably not going to work very well at all. Mm. You talk about something which is a big passion of mine, which is this idea of customer. And I'm, I'm always fascinated with the idea. You have all the iterations of customer service, customer satisfaction, customer centricity, customer experience. For me, it's all about a connection with your customer. But you talk about this idea of the fight for your customer's mind. And I think this is important to explore because I always encourage people that come through our programs that wherever they are in an organization, they've got a relationship with their customer. So how, how, how can they fight for the customer mind? Well, the first thing, <clears throat> the first critical thing is to be different from your competition. You, you've got no place in your customer's mind whatsoever if you are exactly like all the other suppliers that do the same thing. So changing from telling your client how great you are at different things to giving them an experience of how you are is a big change. Now you can give your clients real experiences, you know, come and test drive this thing, let's go and do these things together, let's go and have a look together with your customers how they use our client. That's an actual experience, right? But you can also deliver experiences with stories. Stories are a very close second to getting the to getting the experience. I've worked a lot in oil and gas and mining industries and safety is always a really big issue with those companies because it, it, go, it, it absolutely affects the bottom line. When you have a fatality, it can shut your business down. But it's one of those rare events. So how do you, how do you get people to have the experience of that? And I'll tell you just two really short stories. Like I, I read about one company that their safety induction is not multi-choice online, you know, with the headset on trying to get through this online induction training as quick as I possibly can so that I can go and learn mm. the real job, right? It is everyone comes to the top of the tallest tower crane on our latest construction project, hooks onto a harness and walks all the way out to the end of the crane to understand what height safety is all about. Ooh. Now, that's an experience, oh, yeah. one that they'll talk about and mm. say to each other, And but it's also a, it's a true indoctrination into the company. We take, we take safety seriously and you don't want to fall. <laughs> so, you know, interesting, right? But yeah. that's a true experience. And I also, on on another podcast, the story about a, a manager of a logistics company, the CEO, coming onto a big site, deliberately not wearing his safety vest. And the first person that pulled him up for it, he pulled out some cinema tickets and said, right, and you take tomorrow off, you know, because you, you know, so he's he's giving them an experience of, no, everyone is following this thing, including me, and, yeah. and you're going to force it. So, so actual experiences, but you see the story, triggering the story of him doing that I say it's almost as good because that story will get told all the way through the organization. The people that witnessed him doing that might have been five or six people. The people that heard the story could be thousands in a big company. So the story and the experience go together. The story is a way to get the experience. So I know that answer your question. We're trying Absolutely. to get experiences and stories do it. Absolutely. And again, and for me, anything that, that's customer related, I think, is, 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 is key to it. Correct. Absolutely key to it. What experience is our client really getting? Can we 
manufacture? Can we create new experiences for our client, actual ones, or can we give them story experiences that they can buy into and learn from? Mm. So think in terms of experiences rather than information, hitting them with opinion and facts and information, because they our brain isn't good at remembering that stuff. Mm. We spoke earlier about the difference between case studies and collecting success stories yes. or success stories. And there was a part in the book where you said about collecting success stories. So how many should we have? Is there an ideal number? Do we want them in different genres? What sort of a framework that we can collect our success <clears throat> stories in? Yeah, usually, so what I, I do with my consulting work is help companies get started with the first few. So you, the first story we work on is their company story. That's a critical story. And then we, we try to find value stories, but there may be only one or two. And key staff stories. So what is the backstory of your CEO or your head of customer service or so that the salespeople can tell them? But success stories, if you've been in business for a while, you should have a lot of success stories. Now, you may not have a lot of highly memorable ones, but it's, it's usually possible to find good success stories for each different geography and each different industry that you work with or each different client type because they will resonate better. If, I, if I'm telling my story about Jeff in financial services, that will resonate to another financial services company. At a stretch, maybe another professional services company, but it's you need I needed that story in that situation, right? So what we typically do is map out the five, six areas that you would like to have success stories in and then we go looking for them. Start internally, talk to the customer customer service people, tell me about a good success, you know. Particularly the successes where it looked like it was going to fail. They're the best ones. Mm. And then how do we turn it around? Mm. And then go and talk to that client. Because they're a client, they're a successful client, so they'll be happy to talk. And they'll tell you the backstory. They'll tell you what it was like before you turned up. And they'll tell you what they were afraid would go wrong and their fears and that sort of thing. Mm. So you'll get the whole story. Mm. Yeah. I've noticed during the work that we do that uh, values are not easy for a large organisation to get from the boardroom down to the workforce. Absolutely. Very, very difficult. And so I'm always looking for ways to encourage people and, and give them some insight into how they can do that. And I, I really liked your framework about the value story. Yes. So are we able to sort of walk, walk them through that? Yes, the, 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 it's a simple structure again. Yeah. So the setting is a leader. Now, even the bellboy that went out with the passport to the airport is essentially showing leadership. So that's an act of leadership. So it's a leader in your company that is challenged. That's challenged. So the, the, the complication is they're challenged by a situation where they're forced to demonstrate their values. And then they do demonstrate their values and the and the story is resolved by that, by that, and they and they create a story in the process. So I heard recently about um, uh, an IT company that delivers um, systems integration work for uh, corporations. That's their business, and they have a number of vendor companies that they they sell in as part of their service. And the CEO was getting ready to sign a a partner agreement with one of those suppliers and the last clause in the um, contract said that he would receive 10% commission on any of the products that went through as part of his system integration work. So the CEO had a couple of people from his staff around him get the pen out, crossed out that clause and said to his staff, we don't take commissions. We 
we have an open relationship with our clients. We get paid for the work we do. We don't want there to be any potential conflict of interest with it looking like you know we're getting paid some backdoor way for proposing this particular third party. Mm. It's a the leader's challenge. I'm no doubt that 10% looked attractive. Yeah. Could probably have calculated what it was worth, but it was also a teaching moment to say no, we don't do that. Mm. Yeah, and talking about teaching, you actually have a whole part in the book which is about teaching stories, learning from another's experience. Yes, particularly in for sales, particularly teaching sales. That's, that's the true role of the sales manager in my view. It's teaching from experience with stories. And that's why it's difficult to be a sales manager if you haven't had the experience of selling. It's very hard to, to have rapport with a salesperson if you haven't done it. It's a tough, tough job because you sit between management and, and sales and you, you have to be a manager as well. You have to be able to manage finances, but you also have to coach that sales team. And by far the best coaching is the stories. They want to hear the stories about how you got around the problems that they have or people that you know that got around the problems. Mm. That teaching story, which is the seventh story, is, uh, is a really important one. If we have time, I'll give you an example yeah, please of the teaching story. So, um, when I was account executive, I had a pretty big number, I can't remember, it was in the tens of millions of, was my target. And I had been working for quite a long time on a deal with a media company, and it was for an early version of music download platform, before there was an iPod, actually, in the mid-2000s. So I was working on the old 2G mobile phones, and we could just manage to stream a song after about 20 seconds. So you connect, it take about 20 seconds, and, and as you were playing the song on your 2G mobile phone, it would stream it and you could hear the song, right? So it was very early days. And, and we had a whole team over from Europe to Australia, maybe 10, 20 people, and we had a big team from the client organisation. We worked out how it could technically work in their network and it was going to be a revenue share, so we were going to take a cut of every song. So we were ready to sign the final contract and then we had to go into the corporate headquarters and with this big, long table and all our guys down one side and all their guys on the other side, and we knew each other pretty well by this side too happily chatting away. And in comes at the head of the table the chief negotiator, this guy we hadn't met. This guy it was just a complete arsehole. He's like, <laughs> it pulled the contract apart, like 99.9% reliability, not good enough. We demand 99.999% and the revenue share, nope, we're not going to do that. You're only going to get paid this and, you know. And after the first meeting of being beaten by this guy and feebly trying to, because I was actually in shock, I came back to um, to our office and one of our more senior sales guys looked at me and said, what's, what's gone wrong? And I, I told him what had happened. And I said, I don't think we're going to close this deal. There's no way. And he said, why don't you um, ring that guy up and go and have a chat? And I hadn't even thought of the possibility, you know. And we were, you know, so I thought, yeah, okay. So I did, rang him up. I spent two hours explaining the deal but he didn't even appreciate it was a revenue share and how it worked and and um and then we came back in a couple of days later same setup big table he comes in exactly the same tone of voice exactly the same character but he skirted around every non-negotiable issue and we got to do it we signed the deal and so that that's a teaching story you know that's a story that you can use to help both your sponsor, the person who you're dealing with in the company to get their deal done, and how do you manage difficult people? How do you, mm. how do you get around difficult decision situations? But you can also use it to teach your salespeople. Mm. I, I really liked on uh, Appendix D, 
you, you give everyone a story template, the story builder template. Yeah, and the idea of that is to, to photocopy it or print it. You can also go online. There's an online training course associated, a free online training course associated with this book, and you can download all these templates. So you've got a place to put the parts. Yeah. yeah. What did you like about it? Well, I, I love the fact that literally, like you say, you can photocopy it and you can start just mapping it out. And I think that there's real value in these types of frameworks for people because sometimes yeah. it can seem so overwhelming when, oh, it's some great content, but where do I start? Mm. Well, this is where you start. You start filling, filling in the blanks. There's also an appendix there that, that has a table of each of the stories. I think it's back. Yep, appendix C, yep. And, and also, so that there's all the stories in the book, there's 50 of them. And they're categorized by the type. So you can say, well, I'd like to see some examples of value stories. And you can find them in that and go and jump mm. to the page and read them. And also in the previous page, there is an overview of this one, exactly who the character is and what each story is for, just as a summary so that you can see how each mm. of the stories are used. So if people want to find out more about you, Mike, where should they go? Yeah, Fairly confident your listeners know how to drive a Google search engine. I should hope so. So Mike Adams, seven stories would be more than enough to get the online training, where you can buy the book. It's on many book resellers. The audio book will come out. I'm hoping the audio book comes out this week. It's been Great. sitting there in approval stage. Um, ebook is still on sale. Audio book, paperback, hardback, locally. If you want a bunch of books, I can send you the... The best quality book is not the print-on-demand from Amazon. Those tend to be fairly cheap for mm. production. So if you want 10 or 20 books, then I'll, I'll send them to you, and they're really good quality. Okay. Any last words on leadership and storytelling you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah, uh, look, I think it's true that the best leaders already are storytelling storytellers. If you aspire to be the best leader you can be, take a note, note the stories that people tell and notice the impact that they have and then you can start to model yourself on those on those people and there are some really good examples on youtube steve jobs tells great stories you know he's played the whole history of those kind of stories you can you can listen to well on that note thank you so much mike Adams, for being on the singe and leadership podcast julian it's been a delight thanks for having me Well, that wraps up episode 64 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast, another interview with an author. I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergen Group website and engage in conversation with us. Tell me what you liked about the episode. Tell us who you'd like us to interview or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver. And as always, if you are an iPhone user, it would be really appreciated if you head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review. In next week's episode, I speak with Sandra Alloy, who is the founder and CEO of the Bureau of Business. It's another great interview with an Australian leader. And until then, we'd love to hear what you think and happy listening.